Vladimir Putin's Russia has a written constitution. Yes, Russian citizens have constitutional rights. Citizens of the Russian Federation shall have the right to assemble peacefully without weapons, hold rallies, meetings and demonstrations, marches and pickets. That at least is what the Russian constitution says. But this is what Vladimir Putin actually does. Olga Misik was a 17-year-old woman who decided the Russian constitution was so admirable she'd read it aloud in public, reminding people of their rights in front of a large group of Russian police in full riot gear. Olga's right to assemble peacefully, or even to mention her constitutional rights, was cut short. Putin's police carried her off. To the boss in the Kremlin, reminding Russians of their rights was a criminal offence. In this episode of The Big Steel, the biggest theft in history and the biggest country in the world, Russia, by its own government led by Vladimir Putin, we're exploring the theft of democracy itself. Why does Putin bother to hold elections when, spoiler alert, we know who wins before the votes are counted, in fact, before they're even cast? And what of Western stereotypes of Russia, including the belief that from the Tsars to Stalin and Putin, only a strong man can bring stability to such a vast country. As you'll hear, the astonishing bravery of so many Russians we've talked to proves that there is a real hunger for a better, truly democratic Russian state. We'll also ask whether what the West thinks and does really matters in Russian politics. Can we help Russian people bring about change? And should we? We begin back in 2019 with Olga Misik publicly reading out her country's constitution. She was quoting from a document that should inspire Russian citizens. Here's a flavour. Article 29. 1. Everyone shall be guaranteed the freedom of ideas and speech. 2. Propaganda or agitation which arouses social, racial, national or religious hatred and hostility shall be prohibited. Propaganda of social, racial, national, religious or linguistic supremacy shall also be prohibited. 3. Nobody shall be forced to express his thoughts and convictions or to deny them. 4. Everyone shall have the right freely to seek, receive, transmit, produce and disseminate information by any legal means. The list of types of information compromising state secrets shall be determined by federal law. 5. The freedom of mass media shall be guaranteed. Censorship shall be prohibited. Olga clearly thought the Russian constitution is, in theory, something to be proud of. But when reading the constitution is treated as subversion, you get a flavour of the dangerous mind games in Putin's Russia. Placed under house arrest for more than two years after causing $47 in damage to a security booth outside the prosecutor general's office, Olga explained why she risked her freedom by reminding Russians that their freedoms are supposedly guaranteed. Two years ago, on 27 July, 
2019 года Two years ago, on July 27, 2019, one of the biggest rallies for fair elections took place. And we were supposed to meet, we were supposed to hold a meeting on Tiviskaya, but we were never allowed to go there. We were locked in three lanes. I, I was in Bryusov Lane, and the Columns cops did not allow us to pass Tiviskaya. And I sat down in front of this cordon and I began to read the constitution. More precisely, a friend of mine offered me a constitution. And I was like, oh, cool idea, I'll go and read it. That is, I didn't even count on any reaction. And I walked along the cordon and I read the constitution. And when I read the 31st article on freedom of demonstration, I suddenly noticed that everyone was quiet and looking at me. And I looked at everyone and everyone at me. And suddenly everyone started clapping and I was very scared. It was so unexpected. And then when, when the cordon moved on the crowd, it was pretty hard work because the police were beating the front rows and it was very difficult to hold the front line. And after that, I was so exhausted and just sank to the ground. And they immediately began to photograph me and ask me to read the constitution again. And it was then, then that that photo was taken where I sit and I look so tired and think, when are you going to leave me alone? I cannot do this anymore. Olga and her young supporters are the big hope for Russia's future. They defy Putin's police and also disprove Western stereotypes that Russians cannot cope with democracy. The leading opposition politician Vladimir Karamurza also rejects the idea that his country needs the supposed discipline of dictators. I also heard this view from Western commentators and I find this view offensive. I find this view insulting. I find this view borderline racist, frankly, and I find this view historically wrong. I'm a historian by education. Every time Russians have actually had an opportunity to choose their own fate in a free election, to choose between a democratic and an authoritarian path, they've always chosen the democratic one in 1906, in the first state Duma election, in 1917, in the election to the Constituent Assembly, in 1991, in the first ever direct election for a head of state in the thousand-year history of Russia. Unfortunately, it's, it's not been many times in our history when Russians were actually able to freely choose uh, in, the, in a democratic election between a democratic and an authoritarian path. But every time it happened, uh, our people chose democracy. So those who try to suggest that Russians are somehow historically destined or doomed to live um, under, you know, some sort of authoritarian system, what it was about them that... Uh, American President Ronald Reagan spoke uh, in his Westminster speech in 1982 when he dismissed this view as cultural condescension or worse. This is his phrase, and this is exactly what it is. So frankly, I don't think we should dignify this sort of ahistoric, borderline racist view with any kind of serious credibility. There's no such thing as cultural determinism. There, are, there, there is no nation, no culture, no people on this planet who are just historically destined and doomed to live forever under an authoritarian dictatorship. This has been said about many countries and many nations before. Most of them today are successful, accomplished liberal democracies. So let's just throw this 
garbage argument, frankly, uh, in the bin where it belongs. We do care about our country. We love our country. We think our country deserves better than to live under the yoke of an authoritarian kleptocratic dictatorship. It's just not okay in the 21st century that this is happening. I mean, look, if you look at the map of Europe today, there are only two dictatorships left in Europe. Those are Putin's Russia and Lukashenko's Belarus. And, and it is very, very clearly, uh, you know, historical aberration that shouldn't be happening. Uh, and there are millions of people in Russia, a lot of young people who want our country to have a future, who want our country to have some prospects, who want our country to be a normal, modern, democratic country, free from fear, where people live in dignity, where people live where their rights are being respected, where people are able to have a say in the running of their own affairs, in the running of their own country. That's a revolutionary concept uh, for, for, for Russia today. We haven't had a free election in more than two decades. The second thing, I suppose, is more personal. Um, I suppose it's the feeling of personal responsibility. Uh, you know, many of us feel that if we were just, just to stand idly on the sidelines and watch what is happening and do nothing about it, then we would be complicit as well. And we are not willing to be complicit in what Vladimir Putin's regime is doing to our country. You can hear true passion and Russian pride in Vladimir's voice. But in the recent Duma or parliamentary elections, Putin's supporters engineered every imaginable dirty trick, from stuffed ballot boxes to independent observers being labelled foreign agents. So why did they even bother with the absurd performance of phony elections? One theory is that it's a political mind game. Allowing them to vote reminds Russians that opposition to Putin is futile. For those Duma elections, the opposition leader Alexei Navalny tried a campaign called Smart Voting. Russians were encouraged to vote for any candidate from any party with any political program, so long as it wasn't Putin's party, United Russia. As Navalny put it, the parties themselves cannot agree and nominate a single candidate against United Russia, but we can agree on this. We are different, but we have one policy. We are against the monopoly of United Russia. Everything else is mathematics. If we all act smartly and vote for the strongest candidate, he will win and United Russia will lose. But that's not what happened. The smartphone app to coordinate the anti-Putin vote suddenly vanished from Apple and Google stores. Both companies removed it after Russian officials threatened them with fines and prosecution. Navalny's aide, Ivan Zadnov, tweeted that removing the Navalny app from stores is a shameful act of political censorship. Russia's authoritarian government and propaganda will be thrilled. He also wrote that the American tech companies had bent to the Kremlin's blackmail. Even so, opposition to Putin continues. OVD Info, for example, is an independent human rights media project. Volunteers began in 2011 to monitor arrests during mass protests. George Orwell famously wrote that in a dictatorship, truth is lies, war is peace. OVD Info simply reports the facts. And in Putin's Russia, that itself is seen as subversive. Grigory Okotin is a co-founder of OVD Info. It was a website and a hotline to collect uh, information about detentions, who was detained, where and where he is now. Just publishes like Twitter-like news. 
journalists and human rights activists and just activists started to pay attention to what's going on with freedom of assembly and with political persecutions. And what we're doing during the moment of protests is collecting information about detentions. So people are calling us or they are communicate with us on Telegram board. We disseminate all this information, analyze it, publish it, publish figures, how many people have been detained. And in 15 minutes, it, it will be around the globe. We started only in Moscow 10 years ago. And for now, we work like 150 cities or more, 180, something, something like that. During last protest in winter, we counted something like 11,000 detained people. It was and it still is the biggest figure in our history. Uh, but later, during court hearings, uh, we received official data from police and they've counted 17,000 people. We counted 11,000 and police said that it was 17,000. Usually, it's vice versa. And the upshot of these detentions? Peaceful protesters face serious consequences. For, for ordinary people, like for people who are thinking about participating in protests, 10 years ago he was facing uh, a perspective of three hours of short-term detention in police department. For now, he's facing like 30 days in uh, jail or thousands years of penalty. In the winter, it was not only 17,000 people have been detained, but also 130 have been arrested. Most of them are still in prison, and uh, uh, there is no real wave of solidarity. Throughout the Big Steel, we focused on the theft of billions of dollars of Russia's resources and how a small group of kleptocrats in the Kremlin are stealing the future of 140 million Russian citizens. But we recognise within our team that we know so little of modern Russian culture. In Soviet times, Solzhenitsyn, Pasternak or Nabokov were read widely in the West. We listened to Prokofiev and Shostakovich, marvelled at Russian chess players or the genius of Tarkovsky's films and the Bolshoi. Nowadays, we can name a few oligarchs, but can we name today's Russian writers, musicians and artists? And what is life like beyond Moscow and St. Petersburg? Mika Golubovsky is a Russian journalist. How are, you know, how are things for, I don't know, ju- journalists, uh, news agencies and others? Are they just under constant pressure or I mean they're talking about those who try to be independent definitely uh, the independent news organizations media they are constantly thinking are we going to be next basically I just went away for 10 days it was practically offline but when I did get some internet I just had like notifications this media is a foreign agent now. This guy had police come to his apartment. A journalist, uh, Raman Debrahwatov from The Insider, had his apartment searched. And it's just a constant prote- a process which doesn't stop. And it's wiping out a lot of media organizations. Media and human rights organizations too. Because just recently, maybe a couple of weeks ago, a very well-known organization, which is called Team 29, Uh, shut down 
which was also active like as a media uh, source. The student media doxa, uh, four of its editors are under house arrest basically now. They actually are under house arrest because they recorded a video defending students' right to protest. As someone who just goes to protest on a regular basis, I could say that uh, people who I see there tend to get a little younger, but really there are people of all ages. Maybe in the last couple of years, there are more younger people. But, you know, at some point, uh, the strategy of the state propaganda was that Navalny is trying to uh, make school kids go out on the street and that uh, half of the people who protest are actually like school children, which was just not true at all. University students, yes. People like in their mid-20s, yes. Kids, sometimes. And police didn't hesitate to detain them as well. Like, you know, 14, 15-year-old kids. Russian law now requires non-profit organizations that receive foreign donations and engage in vaguely defined political activity to register and declare themselves foreign agents. The clear implication is that telling the truth is treason. More than 20 media figures and news organizations are currently listed as foreign agents, including Medusa, OVD Info and the independent TV channel Dojd. Doxa is a magazine founded in 2017 by students at the Higher School of Economics in Moscow to focus on university affairs. When that included human rights, sexual harassment and academic censorship, conflict with the regime was unavoidable. During the 2019 Moscow pro-democracy protests, two Doxa journalists were among thousands arrested. The magazine launched Here We Stand, a project offering digital resources against police brutality. By April 2021, Russian police raided the magazine's office and the homes of editors' families. Four editors, Armin Aramyayan, Natalia Tishkevich, Vladimir Metelkin and Ala Gutnikova, were charged with encouraging minors to take part in illegal activity. All of us, we wear this electronic bracelets, this anklets, right, on our legs that control our location. Here's one of those arrested editors, Ala Gutnikova. Who am I? Just a student, just a journalist, and now I am a political prisoner. I've spent last three months on the home arrest because um, I've been charged under Article uh, 151, Part 2, which is involvement of minors in hazardous activities. And that can lead me up to three years in prison. The thing is that I'm innocent, as well as the three of my colleagues, Armen Ramian, Natasha Tushkevich, and Vladimir Mitolkin. We are journalists and the reason why we are under arrest right now is that in winter we made a short video well basically about our rights freedom of speech and freedom of expressing our political views so in this video we said students are allowed to express their political opinions and it's illegal 
to make them create universities for that and to put them under pressure for them being against Putin. They decided that we were involving kids to some dangerous activities. It's quite obvious that it is a political... Well, we are political prisoners. We had 35 interrogations, even though in the very beginning we said that we're not going to answer their questions because we are taking uh, 51st article of constitution not to witness against yourself. So we are prohibited from using any means of communication and including the internet and we are not allowed to send or get letters we can't use uh, mobile phones we can't use internet i can't work right now because i can't leave my apartment and i can't use internet Ala gutnikova just one of many russians who think their country can do better luke harding is a guardian journalist and best-selling author of shadow state and Mafia State, books on crime and corruption in Russia. I, I think that the most impressive, most extraordinary individuals in Russia at the moment are, are, are opposition activists, are, are investigative journalists, are people who, who challenge power in, in Russia, which, by the way, has been getting much, much darker in recent months, um, often at great personal cost. I mean, you know, Alexei Navalny, we know about. I mean, I met him in Moscow in 2010. He's subsequently become kind of internationally famous. Um, and is now in jail with his prospects kind of deeply uncertain. But there are, you know, many of the investigative journalists I've, I've, I've worked with um, have been arrested in the last couple of months. Their, their, their media outlets have been, have been shut down. So, so there are people. I mean, there, there is a kind of thinking class. There, there are people who are uh, brave um, and uh, principled. And I think they deserve our support. And, y- you know, in, 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 in the 90s, even in Soviet times, Russian journalists were generally not invested, sort of arrested, and didn't have their apartments raided. Now this is happening under Vladimir Putin, and and so so there's a beleaguered class of writers, thinkers, oppositionists, just as strong as in Soviet times, and I, I revere them, I respect them, and we need to pay attention and to follow their fates really closely. Evgeny Feldman is a Russian photojournalist based in Moscow. Evgeny has covered protests across the country and trials of opposition leaders and activists. And filming protests means making all kinds of ethical decisions. There is this big discussion in Russian media, independent media, uh, Russian photographers, whether we should um, show faces of protesters who at the point are kind of physically contacting with the police. Russian protests are incredibly peaceful. But the thing is that in Russia, yeah, in Russia, protesters are um, sometimes prosecuted for, I don't know, throwing a paper cup on the asphalt uh, not far from the policeman or some something like that, or making him scared because something was flying like a plastic bottle nearby of his head or whatever. And also we know that uh, if you are charged with uh, something, anything, on uh, during some political trial, you will be convicted and there is no fair trial. And therefore, uh, there is this long discussion on whether we should show faces of people who are somehow contacting the police physically. 
holding the police barricades and stopping policemen from beating them or whatever. That might be something we consider, but not in terms of, uh, you know, something the authorities will do to us, the photographers. And you're on the front line as well. Do you have the day-to-day fear that they're going to find some reason to arrest you and just find a way of getting you? It's hard to tell. I think that at the moment, I think that there are many of my colleagues who are risking a lot more than me, those who are investigating some particular corruption stories or doing some political assessment stories or whatever. But at the same time, the problem is that we do not know whether the situation might shift at some moment and those risks will kind of enlarge. The problem is that, you know, during the last years, the situation has truly shifted a lot. And um, all that uh, we've spoken about today regarding the events of the last year would be uh, maybe unimaginable a year ago. Belarus thing, the Navalny poisoning, the recognition of Medusa as foreign agent, all those unprovoked acts by the states are really destroying the way we were assessing the situation. Even though we were wrong on that, as we know now, as we know that all those Novichok guys were all around all those time, but still, you know, the picture we have, the assessment we have, kind of changes when you get new information. So a year ago, I would be much more positive. Oliver Carroll, Russia correspondent for The Independent, agrees that the Putin regime is becoming even more repressive. Journalism essentially has become a crime um, and that's uh, really changed the atmosphere. It's changed the, the, the risk of protest. We have the spectacle of essentially every opposition figure and we're right down to the most insignificant opposition figures being arrested, threatened with arrest at the very least or fleeing the country journalists being arrested, lawyers acting for the opposition being arrested. And of course, all of this has been done with the elections in mind. New media and new technologies, however, mean that stopping the flow of information in Russia is like trying to stop running water with a fishing net. Mari Govori is a YouTuber and activist from Nizhny Novgorod. I'm Marie Speak, a blogger from Nizhny Novgorod. I shoot about politics, sometimes musically and funny, but always very kind. In general, the situation in Nizhny is very different, in my opinion, from the rest of Russia. There is either some kind of urban tradition or something else, but here the security forces are more, I don't know, to pick a word, everything here is somehow sick and too cruel. There is some sort of tradition of the brutality of the security forces. They're very crazy. I was such an analogue person. My husband introduced me to this world of YouTube and everything digital. I was like, wow, cool. And so we started this channel. Then he said to me, do you know who Navalny is? And I do not know at all. I was like, mm, I heard something bad. Oh, like, this is probably some kind of swindler, a bandit. He said, actually, no, look here. I was very impressed by this and almost immediately somehow hit this topic. Mari rose to fame when she recorded a cover of the song Despacito, one of the most watched videos on YouTube. Here's Mari's version. 
болят на холоде. Ой, большой эффект именно для канала, естественно, там да спаси то по-русски, где мы там переделали. I took the original text straight and wrote it down by syllables, and it got some incredible numbers of views in public. Oh, this is a song! Wow, this is what you sang, Marie. And I think, guys, there are a lot of better songs. And everyone still writes to me. You'll never do anything better than Despacito. And I had a lot of things better there. For some reason, people need to be told, here is Putin, he is bad. And through some, I don't know, more subtle things, people don't really react to all this. Mary's version is a rude diatribe against Putin. It translates roughly as, I've ticked the box for Putin, and I've also put a candle in it. That's what I've told the police. I've taken it as a rule. They say he's got the end of the bam-bam. They say that with Trump, he'll soon make bam-bam. Slowly more than Brezhnev is successfully ruling us. I'm kidding about successful. He's just ruling us. Well, we can't be dissatisfied here. It's a long story. I go to rallies all the time. All my friends, at least those who I consider friends, but I don't know how mutual it is. Almost my entire social circle is people from the Yablurka party, from Nizhny Novgorod. This is the Committee Against Torture. We all communicate here, and in general in life, it's difficult not to attend these rallies. It's hard to live if you're not aware of your political vector. Mary also released a video full of slogans attracting Putin's supporters, but lampooning them. By popular demand, I am recording ASMR video. With this video, I want to attract an audience who truly loves Putin. You can, I don't know, you can burn yourself alive and after that nothing will happen at all. Or you can, I don't know, kill the merchant on the street and after that, like the Arab Spring. Nobody knows what will serve as a catalyst, as with Black Lives Matter. The world is so unpredictable, especially in Russia. It's completely unpredictable. And you never know what the hell is going to happen in this country. I know for sure that everything will be fine someday because we're all very good people and good people get fairy tales that end well. At least I say this as a mantra simply because if I speak differently, there will be no point in anything at all. But disillusionment at the way things are in Russia is obvious, especially among the young. A survey carried out by Levada Center, an independent research organization, found that more than half of Russians aged 18 to 24 want to emigrate because their homeland offers no good opportunities. Levada Center, of course, has now been named as a foreign agent. Then there's Theatre Doc, founded in 2002 by a group of writers who couldn't find a theatre willing to stage their work. They began focusing on social issues, but by 2010 that turned to criticism of the Putin government. One play concerned a case we explored in the first series of The Big Steel, Sergei Magnitsky, a whistleblowing lawyer who accused Russian tax officials and police of embezzling $230 million. Theatre Doc's play is called One Hour and 18 Minutes, the time Sergei Magnitsky was denied medical help and then died an agonizing death in police custody. I have problems with my English. I only remember the words torture, hurt and accomplices. Zarema Zaudinova is a political activist and was involved with the Magnitsky play. 
It consists of the monologues of those who are involved in this death in one way or another. This is the judge, this is the prosecutor, this is a nurse who did not come in, allowed him to be chained and didn't help him. This is a girl with an ambulance who also did nothing and we are not to blame. And in one hour, 18 minutes in the Magnitsky case and the death of Magnitsky, the theatre took the position of Magnitsky's mother. There is simply her monologue, which was done from an interview with her. And she always went to every show. Only, it's not clear. Is this the judgment of some beautiful Russia of the future? Or just a terrible judgment? And it's also important that after these shows, where political prisoners most often appear, you can always sign postcards to those prisoners, to those political prisoners, and we send them so that they can write letters. No one makes money from this. This is political activism, it turns out. Social activism, rather. We went out and began to invent another language, and I call it creating a language for denormalizing violence. Because the world in which we exist today, we exist in the language of violence. It's like Putin's language, state propaganda language, the language of the male state about the same humiliation and insults and threats. Therefore, it's important to say that this is all not the norm. It's important to create an alternative textbook of the history of invisible Russia, where we actually exist, and not of Putin's speeches and his press conferences. And here in Russia, you simply constantly lose your subjectivity. You can't make a decision on your own. You can't walk down the street normally if there are cops. Because now we live in a state that we do not know. Tomorrow is a war, an arrest, something else. And we live like it's the last day, forgetting that there was something before us and there will be something after us. Although we in Russia are constantly being told that you are meaningless, you are not valuable, there's no value in human life, freedom or everything else. On the other hand, there is VPN. Therefore, it seems to me that the digital dimension, which is accessible to absolutely everyone, is the most important working tool here. There are journalistic investigations on the one hand, and on the other, there is documentary art that reinvents this language, finds some ways to make it more painful. But despite the brilliance and the bravery of so many of modern Russia's creative artists, thinkers and journalists, I wondered if across this vast nation, 11 time zones all the way to the Pacific Ocean, people outside Moscow and St. Petersburg really were aware of this new wave of Russian culture and its political roots, the protests and the arrests. Mika Golubovsky again. Because of Navalny's network of regional, you know, uh, political activists, because of uh, Ovodinfo with their data on uh, police detentions all over Russia, we see that this happens like all over the place. Uh, in big cities all over Russia, from the Far East, like Vladivostok, uh, to Siberia and Novosibirsk, Ekaterinburg, all the big cities, smaller cities, even small villages. It, it's, it's, it's basically happening all over the place. It could be uh, tens or dozens of people, but they're everywhere. <laughs> I think that the best way for change would be from, from the inside, with support, with media coverage, uh, Western, Asian, I don't know, whatever, uh, Latin American media, with, uh, I don't know, any kind of support you could think of, but 
we we should help our ourselves. We can't expect someone to do it for us. But what then of the future? Putin's repeated crackdowns may perversely suggest he flexes the state's muscles because he knows how unpopular he really is. But that's slim consolation for those arrested, detained, beaten and abused. Evgeny Feldman again. I don't have much hope now, I guess. I think that, you know, the events of the last year, Navalny being poisoned, Belarus protests being crushed, Russian doom introducing idiotic laws about foreign agents and um, physical persons who are recognized as media foreign agents or whatever else they come up with. Media I work at, Medusa being recognized as a foreign agent, and also the way public discourse about coronavirus and suddenly Black Lives Matter movement in Russia uh, having some grim turns. This all does not add up into much of hope. I hope you're wrong. Uh, I am as well, but yeah, you know, we know that uh, authoritarian regimes are tend to break up suddenly and unexpectedly and it's easy to analyze them afterwards but at the same time you know for me this is kind of a very complex feeling in terms of um it is not uh, sudden that i spoke not only about some laws and actions by the authorities but also about the public discourse as i think that even something happens and i don't know putin vanishes uh, tomorrow morning or whatever there are still many enormous problems that will be left in the very foundation of the way uh, our society functions. Denial of objective truths that Russian propaganda has been stating for a long time on whatever issue they can possibly get their hands on. This lack of empathy that is uh, professed uh, in the society I think this is uh, kind of unsolvable. And also, if Putin vanishes the next day, there will be, I don't know, a third of the nation who will be uh, deep into nostalgia as they are, I don't know, about Stalin or whatever. There is not much understanding of the way state versus society balance should have been organized. For his part, Vladimir Karamurza remains upbeat. It's time for change and change is inevitable. Vladimir Putin's party, now according to government posters as well, not just the independent polling agencies, is polling down in the 20s, uh, just a few weeks before the parliamentary election. This is frankly a shameful result for a regime that controls every single nationwide television channel, all the levers of power, the whole administrative apparatus, and everything else, down in the 20s. Russians are increasingly saying enough is enough. We have a whole generation of people who have grown up under Vladimir Putin, not knowing and not remembering any other political reality. America has had five presidents in the time that we have been ruled by this one and the same man. This is just not okay. And again, speaking as a historian, every authoritarian regime, every dictatorship has an expiration date. And I think whatever it's trying to do, to maintain its dominance and its control now into its third decade. It is still the case that every authoritarian regime has an expiration date, and I think Vladimir Putin's is fast approaching its own. 
What's difficult to comprehend is that for most Russians, none of this Putin repression is actually a secret. Tens of millions of Russians carry high-quality cameras in their mobile phones, use the internet, and document what matters to them. The state machinery, of course, denies the worst of the crackdowns, with what the historian Tim Snyder told me was implausible deniability, simply sowing confusion and lies so people are not entirely sure what to believe. But I wanted to hear more from Olga Misik, the teenager who bravely reminded Russians of their supposed rights under the Russian constitution. The first meeting I came to was in 2018, on the 9th of September. It was an action against pension reform, and it made a huge impression on me. I just saw for the first time that the police unpredictability is true, and not someone's propaganda fabrications. Before this, I generally treated Navalny and the protests with some some kind of scepticism. Well, since that rally, I have come to all protest actions, and I was detained for the first time on June 12th at the anti-corruption march. It was after that that I began to engage in activism. I've been detained maybe 12 to 13 times. Since the criminal case was brought against me, the main reason is political repression. It's outrageous. I did absolutely nothing wrong. But they start a criminal case against me and want to put me in prison. That is, in itself, completely abnormal. And it seems to me that this is already enough to treat the regime with contempt. But I also know more absurd cases. And all the chaos, well, it just doesn't fit into my head at all. Everything is getting worse and worse all the time, literally every day. I have the most pessimistic forecasts. And by judging what is happening, as I understand it, there will be more and more senseless bans. More and more people will be more and more indifferent to all this. That is, people are more and more afraid. And... They see bad and scary news every day, and a certain protective mechanism is activated that says, that's it, I'm over it, in order not to simply burn out so that it doesn't become completely bad. People simply, simply close their eyes to what is happening around them. And the worse it gets, the more people close their eyes. Although it would seem everything should work the other way around. Like, the worse it gets, the fiercer our struggle. If Navalny had been in prison two years ago, the whole world would have come out. And now everyone is just used to it. Olga and her generation have time on their side. Perhaps the most famous quote from the Russian Revolution is that of Lenin. There are decades where nothing happens, and there are weeks where decades happen. The author and journalist Luke Harding also believes a better Russia is possible in the end. If you're going to do a kind of glib kind of tour de resolve of Russia's history, um, at the time the Italians were, were enjoying the Renaissance and kind of painting cupids, um, Moscow was under a Mongol carnate. Um, in the 19th century, it had the most repressive monarchy in Europe. Um, and, and then it had totalitarianism 
um, and, and the Great Terror and, under the Bolsheviks and, and, and Stalin. It, it looks sort of doomed, but because with Putin you had a kind of essentially what was a kind of a sort of ca- a counter reformation a, a, a attempt to turn the clock back to kind of KGB times, and, and you now have a kind of secret secret policeman run state. But 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 you also have a kind of indomitable. Uh, spirits from from the Russian people, from Russian opposition activists, from ordinary Russians who are who are stoical and phlegmatic, um, and who who are not stupid. I mean, I mean, despite Putin's kind of popularity, despite the propaganda, they they do realize they do travel abroad that things are better elsewhere. And actually, among the Russian elites, they they kind of keep their families out of the country and so on, and certainly their wealth. So. You know, change never happens. Things seem implacable and impossible. And then suddenly there's a kind of explosion, as there was at the end of the Cold War with perestroika when the Soviet Union abruptly collapsed. Um, And you never know. I mean, Putin is not immortal. Um, He will die at some point. And and I I was talking to Leonid Volkov, who's um, Alexei Navalny's aide living in exile, who said, look... We're, we're younger than they are. We're smarter than they are. We, we believe that two plus two equals four. And sure, Putin can stagger on for two years, three years, five years. But eventually we will prevail um, and we will win. I like to think that there's something in that, that at some point a younger generation will realise that they don't want to live in this Soviet-inflated world. They want something better and brighter and freer and more plural and more democratic, still essentially Russian doesn't have to stop being Russian. I I, I live in hope that that may happen someday. One thing has changed for me in the making of this series. I began constantly asking Russians that we talked to, where is the hope? In a way, I fell into the patronising trap that Russia has thrown up so many bad leaders that the chances of change and the evidence for change seem slim. But as an old-fashioned Marxist, Antonio Gramsci once suggested, the pessimism of the intellect may in the end be defeated by what he called the optimism of the will. The will of so many Russians, especially younger Russians, is the will to change and to make Russia live up to its own expectations for greatness. Coming up next, what, if anything, can the West do to help? The European Union, often snubbed or dismissed as irrelevant by Putin, is trying to get its act together. The Russian policy towards the EU isn't so much about not taking the EU seriously. It's about a concerted, long-term, dedicated effort to destroy it. Nobody outside Brussels would ever consider that the EU has a meaningful response to the challenge that is posed by Russia. And the United Kingdom wants to play a constructive role too. Here's a flavour of the debate in the West about our Russia problem. There's been a realisation for a couple of decades in the Kremlin that Western politics is a soft underbelly that you can you can influence. Um, and so, you know, there are good actors in this game, but there are also bad actors as well. And I, I would just say to, to the British government, to other Western governments, you know, to update the famous phrase, beware Greeks bearing gifts, be, beware Russian oligarchs bearing gifts, because they may not be quite what they seem. The Big Steel was presented by me, Gavin Esler, and produced for Fresh Air Production by Martin Points Roberts. Be sure to follow us and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts so you don't miss an episode. Listener.